very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview, you know what to do. Give yourself the gift of truth. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. And for media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a contact link on our website. I want to hear from you. Should you believe in UFOs? If you question why the subject of UFOs should be taken seriously, tonight we will have a thought-provoking conversation for those at every level of knowledge and belief in the UFO phenomenon with a special guest, Dr. Robert Davis, PhD, who will give us his unique viewpoints through an objective investigation of the alleged alien visitations of Earth and authenticity of the UFO phenomenon. Should you believe? And all of you know how I feel about the word believe. We want to know, right? All of this and much more, right now on Veritas. Dr. Robert Davis is an internationally recognized scientist in his field and served as a professor at the State University of New York for over 30 years. He graduated with a BA and MA from the City University of New York and with a PhD in hearing science and audiology from the Ohio State University. Dr. Davis is the author of The UFO Phenomenon, Should I Believe? His research and investigation into the UFO phenomenon convinced him that the phenomenon remains unresolved is a source of considerable debate among millions worldwide and is a very important concern, unfortunately ignored by the general scientific community. He advocates for the need to advance our understanding of the phenomenon through the development of a governance structure to provide the necessary leadership, direction, and related resource support, both human and fiscal, for a multidisciplinary team of leading scholars to study the phenomenon. And to learn more about Dr. Davies and his work, visit his website at theufophenomenon.com. And directly from the state of New York, I would like to welcome Dr. Robert Davis. Hello, Dr. Davis, and welcome to Veritas. Well, I'm happy to be here, and I want to thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, and I want to congratulate you for your important service through this excellent show. Oh, it's my pleasure. And... As I was telling you offline the other day, sometimes it's important to have somebody from academia who comes forward, who wants to study this 
phenomenon and does it in a very scientific way because we lack that. At the same time, many people have spoken with people with doctorate degrees. They're afraid. By the way, may I call you Robert? Oh, of course. Thank you. Many people from academia are literally, literally, Robert, scared to talk publicly about this phenomenon, at this topic, because they fear for their own profession, and sometimes even for their lives. Before we begin, what do you say about that? Well, I would say that it is very unfortunate that the scientific community in general regards ufology as a pseudoscience. And they're reluctant, as you know, to become more actively involved in research in the many areas in which ufology encompasses. Uh, and of course, there's a variety of reasons why they are reluctant to do so. One, of course, being fear of ridicule by their colleagues. They also realize that there's, there has been very little, in my opinion, progress made throughout the decades uh, that have helped to make a firm conclusion as to what governs the nature of this phenomenon, which I do believe exists. Now, since they need to get tenure, they have to obviously publish. So they may feel that this field of study uh, will not allow them to, to do the type of uh, research that will result in a sufficient number of publications that can contribute to tenure. Uh, and unfortunately, unfortunately, very few scientists uh, are actively engaged in this uh, project. But it's um, hopefully it will change. And and if anything, uh, we need more scientists from a diverse range of disciplines, not only physics, of course, and astronomy and psychology, sociology, etc., which we don't have. And uh, and and maybe that will change over time uh, because we don't understand this phenomenon, despite the contention by many ufologists that we have sufficient compelling evidence at the present time, which support the fact that we are being visited by non-human intelligence from somewhere, either from a, another solar system in the universe or another dimension which may coexist with ours, or it might be uh, explained on the basis of quantum physics or psychosocial phenomena, paranormal. We can go through the whole range of possibilities. But in my mind, we need more scientists in order to help establish not only the criteria to measure, adequately measure and understand this phenomenon better, uh, especially to understand the force which governs its behavior, which defies logical explanation. Um, and we need to attract more scientists to, to do so. And it's very unfortunate that that is not the case. First time I've heard the term NHI, non-human intelligence, I think it's a rock band that has that name, but in terms of the UFO phenomenon, did you coin the, the term non-human intelligence? No, I haven't. Okay. How did you become interested in the UFO phenomenon and what is your position of the phenomenon? 
Well, it's a good question. And uh, I've always been intrigued by mysteries. And being a baby boomer, I uh, was around in the uh, 60s. And maybe I I watched too many reruns of Star Trek and and the Twilight Zone. But, you know, the flying saucer hype was up front and center at that time in comparison to now. And I got caught up in it. But what uh, I, of course, read many books on the topic, but what really motivated me to write a book was when my wife and I was in uh, Sedona, Arizona, one of the most beautiful towns, little cities in America. Not not too far away from me, by the way. Oh, really? Oh, I'm I'm in Tucson. Oh, Oh, very well. Okay. And you're probably by Tombstone, my favorite favorite little city. Um, Nevertheless, uh, in the night sky, we observed an orange orb, uh, which many people do report. And uh, soon after that observation, another orange orb either emerged from it or from behind it. It was difficult to tell. They remained uh, stationary for several minutes and eventually winked out. Now, some people would contend that that's non-human intelligence uh, behind that process. And, and to me, that uh, that's, doesn't provide sufficient evidence to support that contention. But we certainly did see something highly unusual. What it is, I have no idea. So I, I, I need to be somewhat objective about it. Uh, and, and maybe my background as a scientist helps me to to do so, although I, I, I'm, I'm not always objective all the time. Um, but nevertheless, one question that can be answered with um, unequivocal uh, con- you know, confirmation is whether or not UFOs exist. And, and the answer is yes, indeed. Um, but their existence does not necessarily mean that they are physical craft from another solar system or dimension. Uh, it, it, it simply indicates that we have an unexplained moving object in the sky. And, and typically, it's, a, it's a, certainly a weather balloon, a satellite, meteor, meteorological or an atmospheric event, uh, some black box uh, project that the Air Force may be conducting. But the, I guess the more elusive fundamental question is, does the collective evidence provide that undeniable confirmation that non-human intelligence is visiting Earth? Uh, and, and that's the source of debate. Many ufologists contend that we have sufficient compelling evidence based primarily on, on what? Uh, what, what they read from documents released by the Freedom of Information Act, um, uh, photographs, of course, and videos, uh, testimony by uh, not only pilots and astronauts, but other key witnesses from the military and government agencies and air traffic controllers, among others. I don't dispute that. There is no question that there are unidentified flying objects, again, that defy logical explanation. And But I don't go so far as many leading ufologists do by saying 
that we have aliens, uh, dead aliens that that crashed in uh, Roswell, New Mexico, among other places, and who are being held in some underground base uh, somewhere. Now, uh, maybe they are. Uh, but I can't make that conclusion un until I have some concrete evidence uh, or that so-called smoking gun or at least some, um, uh, you know, strong gunpowder, so to speak, to, to make a firm, irrefutable conclusion to, to, that documents and demonstrates that we do have non-human intelligence uh, here on our planet in, in some form. But to, to better understand, I guess, that the, the patterns and the regulation uh, of UFOs, scientists will need to consider appropriate research methods, whatever they may be, to study the phenomena associated with such encounters. And we're not only talking about uh, unexplainable events that defy you know, you know, logical explanation by the unusual maneuverability of these objects in, in, in the skies. Uh, but, but we have to, I think, move away from the retrospective approaches that, that are done by, by reviewing documents through the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, by trying to figure out what presidents know of UFOs uh, uh, or studying mass sightings uh, and unique incidents like what happened supposedly in Roswell, New Mexico or the Phoenix Lights um, back in, I think it was 1997, right. the mass sightings in Hudson Valley, New York in the 80s. The popular Rendlesham Forest incident, I think that was in 1980, among many others. Uh, but the, this is important. There's no question about it, using a retrospective approach to better understand what what these incidents mean, because they are they, they are informative. They do provide some useful knowledge about the uh, the physical nature and 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 maneuverability. Of, of these objects, which is extraordinary. And, and it certainly suggests that we don't have the type of um, knowledge related to uh, the construction of aircraft that can demonstrate the type of uh, movements, speed, um, uh, the way it defies gravity and inertia. We, we don't have that technology. And if we do, it's certainly held uh, top secret and, and nobody is aware of it. But it's unlikely that that is the case. So I think we need to uh, have a multidisciplinary team of scientists with sufficient governance uh, and human and fiscal resources that can come together in an organized, formal manner that can possibly, possibly study this phenomenon in a way that has never occurred before. But don't you think this is happening behind the scenes already? They have a plethora of scientists from around the world who are studying this, but there is a reason why it's not made public. 
Uh, that's an extraordinarily good question, uh, Mel. And there has been some contention made by uh, a variety of individuals who who believe just that. And and I think that that is probably the case. Uh, I think there is no question that our government and military, as well as many other uh, governments and military agencies throughout the world, uh, firmly believe that we have a phenomenon uh, such as this. And if I was in a position uh, to make the decision of whether or not we should study this phenomenon, I certainly would do so. And it would certainly not surprise me at all that we are in some way studying it in some type of secret uh, underground fashion that is not being made public. So, uh, you know, there, there, are, there are concerns in terms of making that public uh, for uh, trying to minimize any potential panic and worry on the part of society. So um, there, there, there are uh, supposedly, I believe it's called unacknowledged uh, secret processes, something like that. That Leslie Keene, a journalist who wrote a book, and I can't recall the title, something like UFOs, Pilots, Government, um, and I forget the name. Yeah, she's been with us. She's a good friend. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's done a wonderful job. And, and she said that she's been told uh, by a leading military official, I think his name was Miller from the Navy, who contends that, who contends that we, in fact, do have – uh, a secret uh, research mission that involves uh, the UFO phenomenon. And even high-ranking government officials are, are denied access to it. Well, maybe, maybe that's true, but it would not surprise me in the least that we do have some type of, I wouldn't call it a conspiracy, uh, as many ufologists do, but uh, I believe strongly something is going on uh, of that order, not only here, but in other countries as well. And we'll discuss the proposed scientific methodology protocols that need to be implemented, at least for the public, in order to better study the phenomena. We can do that uh, later. But right from the beginning, I want to let the listeners know that your position on the UFO phenomenon is that of an, an agnostic based on a thorough and objective analysis of the UFO evidence, is that correct? Yeah, I would I would regard my position as just that, correct. And I think it's important to accept that. At the same time, you're obviously a skeptic with an open mind, because otherwise you would not have written this book. And you cite all the the quotes and and the the evidence found in in the past hundreds and hundreds of cases. But uh, on the UFO topic, and we don't need to give them, you know. The usual Kenneth Arnold flying saucers 101 or 1947's Roswell. Our audience is pretty advanced when it comes to this. So we can we can skip that. But when we look at the number of observable galaxies, I mean, take our our galaxy alone. We have what 300 billion stars in our very own Milky Way galaxy, and there are 100 billion 
galaxies in our observable universe. Therefore, logic tells me there must be trillions of planets. If we use the law of probability, is there life? If there's life here, why wouldn't there be life in just one other planet among trillions, Robert? Oh, there is life. Uh, even though we don't uh, see it up close and personal, uh, I think most scientists um, strongly believe that there is life. The question is whether or not that advanced, uh, if there is advanced life in terms of their technological capabilities, are in fact uh, coming here for some unknown reason. Because if they are, if they are, they're, they certainly are not making themselves uh, 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 known in terms of appearing <laughs> on CNN breaking news or landing on the so-called White House, White House lawn. Right. I mean, you, even our closest uh, star, Proxima Centauri, is about 4.2 light years away, and our space shuttle traveling at 25,000 miles an hour uh, trying to uh, – uh, close at 72 trillion miles to get there, it's going to take us about 100,000 years to do so. Now, that doesn't mean uh, they can't get here from there, as, as we say, in a blink of an eye, because many theoretical physicists ascribe to uh, the wormhole theory where, as you well know, and many of your listeners do, Possibly space can be bent and thus allow for travel uh, from millions and trillions of miles away in in a blink of an eye. If, again, we, we have that's theor theoretical on our part, and we, of course, don't have the, the, the confirmation by scientific principles that, that exist today. I mean, after all, it took. Uh, 66 years to go from Kitty Hawk to when we first walked on the moon. Oh, yep. So we do not have the probably the appropriate scientific principles that can be applied uh, to to make a, a firm conclusion, allow us to better understand the nature of this phenomena. But at least we should try and Probably, uh, we might even consider uh, the multiverse theory that, that Stephen Hawking, among other physicists, contend uh, might explain the nature of this phenomenon. And in his book, The Grand Design, he, he talks about the multiverse. And essentially, essentially, we're talking about uh, dimensions that coexist with our own. And uh, it's quite complex. Let me emphasize that it is highly theoretical, nevertheless. But another leading physicist, the Dr. Green, said there are a couple of multiverses. And he went on to say there are many entities allowed for by this theory. And, and again, it implies that maybe we're living in one dimension while there are other uh, beings that exist in another dimension. And it is one theory among others that might explain the basis of this phenomenon. 
and it gets into quantum physics, which also is it's a highly theoretical issue. Or maybe, as you suggested, uh, as a possibility, they're from another solar system uh, from, you know, light years away. That is certainly within the realm of possibility. But what criteria can scientists use to make that firm conclusion as to what the phenomenon is? I was smiling when you mentioned Proxima Centauri because I have a story to tell. Uh, even as a 12-year-old, I remember I had a cousin who was a, an aerospace engineer, and he would go on TV to discuss NASA and the space shuttle in the 1980s. He was a math wizard. To me, he was a genius. But he showed me his conventional scientific mind when I asked him this very simple question, Robert. I said, Elliot, do you think we have been visited by an extraterrestrial race? And his answer, no, it's impossible. And that's when he said, our closest star is Proxima Centauri, our true nearest neighbor at 4.24 light years away, which means it would take them 4.24 years traveling at the speed of light to come here, which means any occupants will be plastered on the spacecraft. So no, I don't think we have been visited, he said. So even as a 12-year-old, I understood that he was coming to that conclusion based on what he learned in academia, and he could not step outside of his learned paradigm. Why are we so arrogant to say something is impossible just because we cannot fathom other possibilities? How many things were discussed during Star Trek that are now reality? Oh, of course. You make, you make a, a, an excellent point. And, and that presents many baffling uh, questions in, in order to answer uh, appropriately. Um, it, it, you know, what, where are we going to be just a hundred years from now in terms of our, our solving scientific principles that, that uh, remain unexplained and are highly theoretical, like the multiverse theory. Uh, and, and I think we need to look more at quantum physics in, in order to possibly uh, help determine whether or not there are these extra dimensions, for instance, or if time travel, not time travel necessarily, but uh, traveling from distances which seem incomprehensible uh, serve as a basis for visitation uh, to our planet by non-human intelligence. But, you know, within the abstract field of quantum physics, which uh, is a branch of physics that deals with physical phenomena at microscopic levels, uh, the controversial existence of this, as I mentioned earlier, alternate realities, has been promoted as a possible explanation for the UFO phenomenon. And according to quantum physics, at least uh, on the basis of Stephen Hawking, among other individuals, and I'm not going to argue with them, <laughs> a particle uh, in, in, is in a constant state of flux. And this is, this is what Hawking said in his book in Grand Design. And when it is, um, it, it can be determined to be anywhere 
uh, or in many places at the same time. So if some UFOs use quantum mechanics to bend space and time and our conscious reality, then it might explain how the same UFO could appear as two separate objects at the same time. And what's important is this is often the case. This is often the case. And I, and I bring up the incident of Rendlesham Forest when many military personnel, as you and many of your listeners are aware of, yeah. observed uh, a, a variety of UFOs, one of which apparently landed in the forest near Bentwaters Air Force Base. I, I forget the year, right? 1980 or? No, 1980. Yep, precisely. 1980. And what's interesting about that incident on many levels is that uh, at the same time, they appeared completely different to both individuals who were there to see that UFO. Uh, Penniston and Burroughs, I believe, are their names. Mm -hmm. One saw and touched that solid triangular, triangular craft and you know, observed uh, unusual symbols on it and even received uh, a binary code of zeros and one, right. which which he as right which he transcribed in a book and it's now a source of controversy and analysis in terms of you know what it implies if anything but my point here is that Burroughs did not see that triangular craft he saw a glowing orb of energy which which says something that's quite interesting it says something maybe about quantum physics and how our reality or consciousness can be affected differently. And, and maybe, maybe this phenomenon somehow alters our reality, as, as some theories in quantum uh, mechanics or physics implies on a theoretical basis. But many people experience the same thing. Two people looking at, at, at a, a UFO, so to speak, describe it in two different ways so it's difficult to know what what that means but let me let me emphasize to you in response to your excellent question uh where we need to go and i write i address this in my book the ufo phenomenon should i believe uh where i call for the need to have a, that multidisciplinary team of scientists both uh, in in uh, social sciences as well as more or less the hardcore physical sciences to study the phenomenon. And just recently, there is the development of the Foundation for Research into extra terrestrial, uh, I think it's extraterrestrial encounters. The acronym is FREE. I'm not sure if you, you ever heard of that, which is a non-for-profit organization. It was co-founded and directed by Ray Hernandez, who happens to be a lawyer, and Christina Knowles. And, and I'm, I'm like part of it. I'm part of it. Oh, what's that? I'm part of it. I'm part of Free. Oh, you are? Yes. Oh, I'm one I of the interviewers know. with, among uh, others, Wheatley Strieber and, and other great folks oh, from the UFO community. Oh, that's fantastic, yeah. Mel. I, I look forward to working with you in that, in that capacity. That's wonderful. Uh, as you then well know, we have many uh, 
um, PhD physicists and psychologists, scientists from other professions, medical. Let me interject uh, for a second. Of course. I, I hate to interject. That's quite I right. had a very long conversation with Ray. <laughs> and now I'm putting two and two together. You are the Robert Davis he kept talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I yeah. wish I had known before the interview that you were the Robert da Dr. Robert Davis that he was referring to when he and I spoke. Okay. I'm sorry. Please proceed. Okay. Uh, thank you for mentioning that. But yes, I'm, I'm newly appointed to that committee. Uh, and, and that group of individuals also incorporates many experiencers or contactees with non-human intelligence. And free, as you well know, uh, is, is the first attempt to study human encounters with non-human intelligence and, and related paranormal phenomena, uh, in order to determine through a research process, which right now consists of surveys to individuals who allegedly claim to have had, uh, some type of it, 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 experience or contact with non-human intelligence. And, and the primary mission from what I gather is to, is, is to, is for free to determine if there is a relationship between quantum physics, consciousness, and the paranormal to help better define the nature of the phenomenon. And this, this seems like the first academic research process uh, in this field. And, and, and if I may, Mel, in, encourage any of your listeners now who believe to have had an experience in any way with non-human intelligent beings to visit their website, which is experiencer.co. It's not .com, uh, experiencer.co, and take, take their survey, which may be found on the left-hand side of, of the website, uh, because there, there is very interesting results, preliminary results that have been obtained thus far. And Mel, would you mind if I just talk about four responses to questions from this questionnaire that has been, uh, submitted by, uh, free? That's fine. We're going we're to have Ray in the future, uh, with, uh, Mary Watwell in the near future, but please, uh, share the four questions. Oh, that would be wonderful. That would be a wonderful show, and I would certainly look forward to listening to that. Mary Rodwell is very interesting. I spoke with her recently, and she has extraordinary experiences and reports by individuals who've had uh, direct contact, allegedly, uh, with non-human intelligence. But here, here's a response based based from approximately 700 individuals. Here's the question. Do you believe you have been observed? Excuse me. Do you believe you have observed a non-human intelligent, intelligent entity? 57% said yes. 16% uh, said no. A certain percentage said I'm not sure. The next question. Besides seeing this non-human intelligent entity, have you interacted in any way with this or these entities? 75% said yes. And that was based on a response from approximately 400 individuals. Only 11% said no. That's, that's quite interesting. 
Next question. Can you describe what group of ETs have you observed? Well, there's a wide range of so-called ETs that have been described, with the most being uh, an energy being. Not exactly sure what that, that means. Followed by the typical short grays, three to four feet tall, some spirit form, human-looking entities. We go through the whole gamut of tall grays, hybrids, insectoids, reptilians, uh, even animals, human-looking. It's hard to understand why these individuals are uh, observing these types of, this diverse type of of entities and and for what purpose and are they actually physically irrefutably having these experiences or it is is it in their mind or not last question if i may and i hope i'm not not boring your listening audience but if they can tolerate one more question approximately how many times have you seen or interacted with with these human uh, nine human intelligent entities, 42% said more than 20 times. And if you look at the alien abduction phenomenon research, uh, it's, it clearly indicates that individuals do have repeated experiences over time, as well as many family members also. Now, what's the objective of this? You, you know, we can go on and on and, and, and theorize what, what may be going on. But I don't see irrefutable evidence that people are, in fact, being abducted by non-human intelligence. I find these results startling. I, I find the, the experience from Mary Rodwell with a lot of contactees, I believe over a thousand contactees, remarkably compelling. But but maybe my bias as a scientist wants to see the scientific method being applied to this phenomena in order to justify unequivocally that people are having direct experiences with these variety of non-human intelligence that, as reported in this survey, as reported by Mary Rodwell, as reported by Dr. John Mack, a leading psychologist from Harvard, Harvard University, a Pulitzer Prize uh, winner who initially was skeptical about this phenomenon, but then became a believer after he studied maybe three to 500 individuals who claimed they were abducted. Uh, and he had a fight for tenure uh, for a long period of time in which he eventually won. Unfortunately, he was killed in England uh, a couple of years back. But we have other psychologists who, who on both sides of the issue, many who dis dispute the alien abduction phenomena on, on the basis of a variety of, of reasons, from sleep paralysis to temporal lobe, uh, temporal lobe uh, epilepsy to some kind of psychocultural hypothesis. Uh, uh, and because about 70% of individuals who do believe that they were abducted by aliens, so to speak, uh, reveal that experience through hypnotic regression. And hypnotic regression, while while appropriate for a lot of uh, abnormal behaviors like uh, 
put smoking and drinking and pain. It, it has been acknowledged to be useful at many levels, but it is not. Memory recall through hypnosis is not admissible in the court of law because it's hardly inaccurate at times. So you have arguments for and against it, and I address it in my book, and, and, and it's hard to know conclusively what is going on. But something is going on. And well, I regard you mentioned yeah. you know some professors who have had have almost lost their tenure. Some have lost their tenure. Take uh, Professor Leo Sprinkle, a great example of somebody who tried to do the right thing by during his private time, he started interviewing people, he started regressing people, and found that the phenomenon was real. And what happened? He was let go from a tenure position at the uh, forgot the University of uh, uh, Montana, or I forgot exactly where he was, uh, Wyoming, I'm not sure exactly. But let me go back to the book for a second, because you mentioned the Rendlesham Forest incident, which I think is one of the most important cases of all time. I've uh, had the pleasure of meeting uh, Jim Peniston, John Burroughs, and, and Larry Warren, three of, of the witnesses. And the interesting thing that you point out during this interview was that Peniston touched the alleged craft. Nothing happened to him. And then you have Burroughs, who saw the light, and I'm reading here a quote that says, quote, Now, after decades of persistence, the U.S. government has finally acknowledged that John Burroughs suffered adverse health effects in the Rendlesham Forest, and therefore the government has recognized the link between his health problems and the UFOs he encountered. In an interesting twist, John's complete medical records file— from that early 1980s time he served in England, still still remain classified. What do you say about that? Well, that was just the other day that that right. that, that, that occurred, which is which is very interesting. Um, and and I don't know if it suggests uh, support of the conspiracy theory, as as many contend it might, or or a clear admission by the Veterans uh, Administration that that he indeed had an encounter with uh, a spacecraft from somewhere other than Earth. But he, they obviously experienced something quite unique, and it might have been due to radiation or some type of electromagnetic effect, which is often uh, concomitant with UFO encounters. Uh, and, and it has produced many different types of physiological effects on people who, who do have close encounters, uh, with these, with these objects. But, uh, it, it, it does relate to also to the, um, to the 1981 halt memo, memo about the Rendlesham, uh, forest incident where uh, I believe his name is Charles Halt. He's lieutenant right. colonel uh, from, um, I guess, the, the base in, in, in the United Kingdom. And he provided a long description of what exactly happened. You know, the, the object was described uh, triangular in shape. Uh, he gave information about its dimensions. He, he went into great detail about the experience. And, and he essentially is saying that he believes 
that something highly unusual occurred because there were many individuals at the base who, who observed this. And it took off in a wink of an eye from the ground. In, I believe in a 45-degree angle. Uh, something, of course, I, I, our technology can, cannot duplicate. So that memo was again revealed through the Freedom of Information Act, as well as many other memos. But the rent, yes, I agree with you, Mel. The rentless, and and I'd love to talk to Burroughs and Penniston as you have, and that must have been a, a very stimulating conversation. But the Rendlesham Forest incident is certainly quite unique. But here again, going back and and studying in a retrospective fashion, these type of incidents, again, it is very intriguing. It does provide us with very important information as to the, the behavior uh, of the, this phenomenon. But does it clearly indicate unequivocally 100% that it, there is non-human intelligence from somewhere else um, performing this type of act? And if so, for what purpose? What is their mission objective? And it's, it's hard to say, but you, you, but you can theorize in terms of getting DNA, uh, the hybrid baby issue, the star children. And then there's a lot of theories out there as to what their objective or purpose is, as you well know. But it's hard, it's hard to ascribe that, that con, uh, conclusive uh, definition. Because there's no agreeable theory or hypothesis among ufologists, let alone sufficient criteria that can be used and applied uh, to irrefutably again, as I'm consistently saying. I do have a habit of repeating myself, and I apologize to you, Melanie, listening <laughs> audience. That's okay. <laughs> but we don't we don't have that smoking gun, despite despite the contention on the part of many ufologists who look at the Rendlesham Forest incident as, as a clear, clear evidence of non-human intelligence visiting Earth. But probably, Mel, the one of the most convincing memos obtained through FOIA was, was the Smith memo. And he was... Uh, a telecommunications officer, and I'm sure you're you're well aware of this. Uh, William Smith, back in 1951, we're going back a few years. That memo was, is regarded by many ufologists as the most, shall I say, compelling evidence to support the belief that the government has covered up their knowledge of UFOs, and he essentially. Uh, I think he worked for the Canadian Department of Transportation. He was a radio engineer, and he had many discussions with UFO officials at that time who allegedly were working on the flying saucer issue. And he he said that they told him that flying saucers exist. Uh, the, the matter is considered of signif great significance. It's It's even rated higher than than the hydrogen bomb at that time, uh, among other things. Now, this is one person making that contention, although although 
more recently, Grant Cameron, uh, another leading ufologist, followed up. And he followed up with, I guess, people who who are aware of, of, of the William Smith memo. And he, in a sense, confirmed exactly what Smith had said. Now, this is second, third-hand information. Uh, can we interpret it literally? Uh, was it a disinformation campaign conducted by the, the government? Uh, who, who knows? But we do have some degree of confirmation by another independent researcher by Grant Cameron. So it, it, is it true? Uh, I, I, I don't know. But I, I know that the government, not only ours, acknowledges that, let's call it flying saucer. I don't like that term, but... <laughs> but these unusual aerial craft, shall we say, exist. I, I was, you know, I went to McDonald's a few days ago and I got into a conversation with somebody who works there. He was in the military for 30 years and he starts telling me, he sees me with my book <laughs> sitting down eating some yogurt. And he comes up to me, talks to me, is that your book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he starts telling me about stories about the so-called uh, flying saucers, how they hovered uh, with, with military personnel watching in awe. Uh, it, obviously, they were, they were committing a security breach, so police cars, fire trucks uh, be, went down the scene. And suddenly, not surprisingly, it emits on a light and then takes off in a blink of an eye. Uh, it appears to wink out, but it's probably traveling at a velocity of several hundred, several thousand miles an hour, which air traffic controllers have confirmed on numerous occasions in a velocity that seems uh, incomprehensible relative to our technological capabilities. But the point is he's not alone. We, we know, we know that this happens and, and we can go spend uh, hours talking about specific incidents. As you well know, Mel, uh, deciphering this, these specific incidents and events reported not only by one person, but a, a mass of individuals uh, at the same time, or confirmation by a pilot and radar, uh, where we have that visual and objective evidence occurring simultaneously. Uh, and, and these events... Uh, are remarkable at many levels, and they're not unusual as well. And it even applies to astronauts that have experienced, as well as many other individuals, uh, issues of what did Valet call it, high strangeness, almost as if there's a psychic or, or paranormal aspect to it. And, and, you know, I can't help I can't help but think of Alan Hynek, um, who you, of course, well know. When he, he was the scientific advisor to Project Blue Book and Grudge and Sign back, I think it was back in the seventies, was it not? And mm-hmm. and uh, and initially he was a skeptic, but. He became a believer, a strong believer after reviewing uh, the over three, five hundred, whatever it was, incidents of UFOs. And he came to the conclusion, and in fact, he reported to the UFO, um, uh, a UFO hearing that was held at the United Nations 
I think it was in the late 70s, when, when he said, this is a phenomenon so strange and foreign to our terrestrial mode of thought. And he continued talking about how there, there, there may be a, a, a psychic or mental aspect to this phenomenon, as well as a physical one. He couldn't explain it. And that's why he says there's sufficient evidence to defend both the extraterrestrial as well as the extra dimensional hypothesis because of that psychic or what we call now maybe paranormal uh, uh, um, behavior associated with with these unusual aerial uh, events and phenomenon simply because these UFOs are seen to materialize and then they dematerialize. People report having telepathic communication with with uh, beings on these crafts, the, of course, highly unusual uh, kinematic behavior of UFOs that defy laws of gravity and inertia. They levitate cars and people. People report missing time when they come in contact with these UFOs. Many even develop psychic abilities after an encounter. You know, the question is, what's going on here? But I, I'm not one to give an answer. Uh, and, and in fact, many leading ufologists do, which upsets me. And, and I don't, I'm not really critical, uh, of ufologists or, or many organizations. I, I commend MUFON and NICAP and NARCAP and among other organizations worldwide that attempt to better understand the nature of this phenomenon. I truly do commend them. And I acknowledge actually that in my book as a dedication. But many conclusions about what these these uh, ships, well, so-called flying saucers are, um, are made on the basis purely of anecdotal evidence uh, or testimony by witnesses they are compelling. Through the Disclosure Project, we have many witnesses from the military and government that report extraordinary uh, experiences and encounters with, with these craft, as well as uh, beings of various types. And, you know, I can't help but think of, of a few incidents that really defy logical explanation and i and i think about um john callahan i think his first name is john john callahan he no, was hold, a hold, hold on before you jump to another case let me just go back to him for a moment if, if i apologize for interrupting you but the william smith memo just to read one one excerpt from the memo which i have right in front of me he said i made discreet inquiries through the canadian embassy staff in washington he was a he was a radio engineer um and he says they were able to uh, they were able to obtain from me the following information a the matter is the most highly classified subject in the united states government rating higher even than the h-bomb b flying saucers exist c their modus operandi 
is a known but concentrated effort is being made by a small group head headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush, ND. The entire matter is considered by the United States authorities to be of tremendous significance. So yes, a very, very powerful memo. Yes, thank you for, for uh, adding more information than I did. I appreciate that, Mel. Um, but what and what's also interesting that it was so-called confirmed by Grant Cameron, and 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 that's that adds a little bit more credibility to it. But these documents from Twining to the Halt memo, we can go on and on. And Richard Dolan provided that information in his book, and people can certainly read them uh, on the blackvault.com, uh, cia.com, uh, many different websites where they can find these documents. But in terms of a, a possible conspiracy theory uh, sort of related to this is, is, again, a report by John Callahan from the FAA, and he discussed a famous incident, or not a famous, but well-known incident of a Japanese airline UFO uh, incident in 1986. And, and he discussed that with Ray, President Reagan at the time, his scientific study group, as well as some personnel from the FBI and the CIA. And after he discussed the details of that unique experience, he said that a CIA agent told everybody they were never there and this never happened. And and he admitted that they were afraid of, of public panic. And Nick Pope essentially said the same thing when he was at the UFO desk for the Ministry of Defense in England uh, many years back. And I have great respect for, for Nick Pope. He's done a wonderful job. And as you know, he wrote a, a fairly recent book about the Rendlesham Forest incident. But, I'll, I'll reserve judgment on Nick Pope, by the way. Okay. You know, I spoke to him, and he, he considers himself a, 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 an agnostic. Although at the time when he was at, uh, in, at, at as part of the Ministry of Defense, uh, he, he said he turned from a skeptic to a believer. So I don't know exactly where he stands, because right now he says, to me at least, that he's an agnostic. Well, you know, I, I, the point is, many of us don't know what's going on, but something highly unusual, something very significant, without question, is happening. And maybe decades in time, uh, we'll, we'll figure it out, uh, or not. But... These these declassified documents clearly indicate that the phenomenon was an issue of considerable concern. And that uh, I that I give credit to the British Ministry of Defense because if he hadn't been for the the classified information on Dr. Milton Torres, you know the story of Milton Torres, don't you? No, I'm not familiar with that. That was the very first radio interview we did. And that is the reason why we created this radio program, because of the Milton Torres story. He was a pilot in 1957 in in uh, uh, England, uh, for the, U, the U.S. Air Force. And in the middle of the night, he and his wingmen were told, scramble, scramble your jets, you need to go and shoot down a UFO. So they scrambled their jets, and the UFO allegedly, according to him, was the size of an aircraft carrier. 
and once he pressed the button for the missiles, they jammed. Or they didn't jam. The UFO just disappeared from his radar. And this is 1957, folks. So obviously the, I forgot the type of plane, but it had the technology that if the object disappeared from the radar, the missile would not activate. And then he he landed his plane, and the next morning there was the you know proverbial men with the the black the men in black or somebody with a blue suit came, coming to him and saying, "What you saw, you will never you'll never you'll never tell your family, nobody, or you will lose your wings." So he kept the secret for fifty years. He couldn't even tell his own father, and he recently he hasn't died, but he is right now. Uh, uh, he fell a couple of years ago, and he cannot even talk anymore. But that's a very, very good story that came out of the British British Ministry of Defense. I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I certainly learned something today, and I, I appreciate you sharing that with me and your audience. Sure. Very important. Uh, um, I'm sorry I wasn't aware of that. I certainly would have incorporated that important issue in, in my book. But, you know, when you mention that, Mel, it reminds me of uh, the the, the um, uh, report by um, a, a, a pilot as part of the disclosure project undertaken by Stephen Greer. Uh, and he, he, too, along with Steve, Stephen Bassett, ought to be commended for their initiative sure. to disclose information to members of the U.S. Congress. Personally, I doubt anything's going to come of it, but nevertheless, it, it is important. And, and it provides, again, a basis for, for better understanding the nature of the phenomenon at the very least. But uh, I forget his first name, but Jafari, he was a Jafari. Pervis, a, Pervis Jafari. Jafari right. Yes, yes. He was a retired general of the Iranian Air Force. Right. And he he said he, he while flying over I think to, to Tehran Iran in the mid seventies he said he approached an object which was giving off intense uh, light of, of different colors and whenever they were close to his plane his weapons jammed as you implied uh, and his radio communications of course uh, didn't function and he was ordered. To to shoot down the UFO. Yeah, very now, similar. That's not the first time. Very similar know. story. Yes. Right. Am I right? And one of the objects, I I think he said um, it headed towards him. He tried to shoot at it, uh, and and it and uh, it it seemed to him like the the the, the weapon he shot at the the object was absorbed. Of course, it had no effect. Something something uh, defended the, the craft against that missile. And then he said, I think there were separate objects that came out of the, the, the mothership, so to speak. One, one landed on the ground, uh, the others took off in different directions, whatever. But the point is that that incident was considered to be highly significant because it met met many criteria to help validate the encounter. It was observed by many witnesses from different locations, both in the air and the ground. It was confirmed by radar. The, the, the witnesses obviously were of high credibility. 
uh, air crew, air traffic controllers, etc. Electromagnetic effects also were reported by many planes who were in the, that vicinity, and that might account for why uh, there were communication problems and, among other uh, disturbances with electrical uh, uh, aspects of plane planes functioning. So, and, and many witnesses said the same thing in terms of what happened. So it seems like there's no doubt something happened that's beyond strange. Uh, again, the, the the collective evidence like this among many other types of incidents, which is which can't be explained using our uh, current day scientific principles and what we know of logic, so to speak, it, it, it raises that question that everybody yearns to answer. What is going on? There's no doubt something is. And before we take our one and only intermission, take the March 1997 Phoenix uh, Lights as an example, and let me give a shout out to uh, our friend Dr. Lynn Kitai for the footage. By the way, I moved to Arizona just two months before this happened, and we can agree that it was a UFO. Anything could be a UFO. It could be a butterfly. Could be a UFO if you cannot identify it. So, and it was obviously not an Air Force. They were not Air Force flares, as the government wants us to believe. Uh, you know, they were released the day after, the two days after. And even Arizona Governor Governor Five Symington, he came. As you know, he came out uh, years later saying that he saw them, even though he ridiculed the event perhaps to maintain the calm. But still, why do most people say it's an extraterrestrial craft piloted by extraterrestrials? What if it was an exotic craft built by us, Robert, and quote-unquote they just wanted the public's reaction? Well, you know, it, it's, it may be. And, and the skeptics uh, will contend that that in fact, is one possibility, but it, it's hard to it's hard to make the conclusion that we do have some type of advanced technology that can maneuver in the way that these objects do. You, you can't discount that, however, Mel, as as a possibility. Uh, it seems to be a remote one. But but still, uh, you have to consider just that. Uh, and the skeptics, of course, come up with other uh, conclusions uh, that, that do not support non-human intelligence. So obviously the atmospheric, the meteorological, among other, among other uh, possible explanations uh, for these uh, unusual events, including plasma, uh, which maybe it's something that we should uh, address as well because plasma behaves in a similar fashion uh, with UFOs. And, and maybe we can discuss that a little later as a possible theory. I'm not saying all UFOs are based on plasma or these ionized gases that comprise 99% of the universe, but they behave again in a very similar fashion to the reports of UFOs in terms of them splitting and merging and moving in nonlinear directions and give the appearance it is under intelligent control. But getting back to your point, Mel, you, you may very well be 
uh, right. At least you have to consider whether or not it is us in some in some way doing this. And and who are the men in black that often appear uh, after a sighting and, and tell people or warn them you, you, you never you, you, you never saw anything and you're never going to say anything. But, you know, what's that all about? As well as cattle mutilations and 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 the Skinwalker Ranch and and other very strange. Uh, and the alien abduction phenomenon, other types of fringe issues, crop circles, uh, among other things that that seem to be associated, not not certainly, but seem to be associated with this phenomenon. And, and it's hard to put all those pieces together in a unified fashion to, to make a conclusion. Uh, and you can't dismiss uh, us having some form of advanced technology, but if we did, why don't we use it, uh, it, it, it to benefit us uh, if we have to go to war or in other ways for transportation? That's what you just said is something that I want to discuss on the way back because it's a, it's a very important reasoning, in my opinion, as to why we don't see the technology. But we have to take our break now. The UFO phenomenon. Should I believe? How can people buy the book, Robert? Amazon is probably the best way to go. And your website, theufophenomenon.com, correct? That's right. Great. Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Dr. Robert Davis. A very important topic, and we're just jumping around because this is... UFO is just a word. I personally don't like the word UFO because it misleads... I actually prefer flying saucers, but that's a different story. But when we come back, we have so much more to discuss with Dr. Robert Davis. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, detoxified iodine, supplements, our USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. Enjoy. 